welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. morning, everyone. Please remain standing in the honor of the reading of God's Word. A special standalone message this morning out of a precious passage. There are so many precious passages, aren't there? But this one is uh, filled with comfort for us, for disciples of all generations. It's Christ's words to his disciples in the upper room. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Let us hear the word of God together. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May God's holy word have its perfect perfect impact on our hearts. Pray with me. Father, may the Holy Spirit come. May he uh, brood over the word, over passage and preacher. May he open its truth to us. May he, the spirit of truth, cause the truth of the word of God to break upon the new man within us and the new mind within us so that we may see Jesus in even more of his greatness And we may be comforted and encouraged in greater depths than we've ever known. We ask you to have your ever-present teaching ministry among us, Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, uh, a standalone message that I'm bringing to you today as I'm contemplating the next series for the springtime. Not sure where the Lord would have me go, but... uh, bringing a message that is from a passage that is on my heart a lot these days. And it speaks to something that I'm seeing more of among believers, and I'm battling more in my own Christian experience. And it's this, a growing and free-floating anxiety about life. A growing anxiety about the world around us, events around us, our lives in the midst of it. I find that there are more Christians being more anxious about more things than in my memory. And I find that I battle with anxiety as well. Now there are more things to be anxious about in our changing world. It's all about us. I'm sure that you would agree with me that our society is becoming increasingly divided but in a way that goes past opinion. It goes from opinion to anger so quickly. 
divided, and more hostile about seemingly everything. And there's a growing hostility in, in a growing segment of our society against views that Christians hold from their biblical convictions. And it concerns us and worries us. Now, our division in society is amplified by a new factor, and that's social media. Social media have allowed simple disagreements to become very personal and very damaging, even canceling people out of relationships and positions in society. It's a scary thing, and it's growing. Our institutions are also becoming more shaky. Government or business, the environments that we've learned to live in and learn to trust, are becoming more disordered. They're becoming more confused about how decisions are made and, and what values really guide these organizations. And they seem to be without answers more often to more questions. This is not just in the American culture. This is worldwide. The nations seem to be groping for answers and ways to move forward like they never have in my lifetime. And we find that people individually are seeming to descend into actions and Beliefs that are shocking to us. People are more broken today in more places. There's a selfishness that seems to escalate through our culture. There's, there's a worship of the will that is frightening. It leads some people into actions that are so selfish and so violent and so murderous that it shocks us and it should it used to be that certain events that certain individuals could, would commit against other people would be a remarkable headline in a month. But now it seems that every week we're seeing people commit actions against other human beings that deeply shock us. So society more divided, our institutions more disordered, and human beings more frayed, and it seems descending into deeper paths of sin than we've seen. And it, it just feels like days are darkening. And people mention this to me a lot. Now, I don't know that we're in a darkening of days that precedes the tribulation or the end of days. I don't think we can know that. But I do think that things are changing. There seems to have been a settling in the last few years in a downward direction. To the, to, so where the things that we've outwardly trusted in our society and in our way of life are becoming less clear. And so there's a darkening in that sense. The things that we have put our trust in for a generation no longer seem so trustworthy. They even seem hostile. Now when that happens, when things change in your world, things that you trusted in become more distant and hard to see, what happens is anxiety grows, doesn't it? It's kind of constant because the changes are constant. It's, it's filled with apprehension because we don't know what will change next. The Bible calls anxiety having a troubled heart. And our situation, in a way, seems similar to where the disciples found themselves in the upper room in a week in which things suddenly unraveled for them. Things that they were believing and hoping for suddenly changed. Ways in which they trusted Christ were suddenly in doubt. And they were experiencing a deep troubling of their heart. Verse 1. Their hearts were troubled, filled with anxiety, the Greek word says. Turned about and just 
completely restless all the time. Into that situation, Jesus comes with this teaching. And he delivers to them a sermon that Martin Luther, the great theologian of the past, called the most comforting sermon Jesus ever preached. And I believe that to be true. And we're going to walk through the first portion of that sermon this morning, verses 1 to 6. And they are filled with comfort and insight. I guess you could say that this message and this text is about how to follow Jesus in darkening days. Now let's move through it together. The first thing I want you to see that Jesus taught is this, that those disciples, as we do as disciples today, needed to grow in their ability to know that he is there. To grow in their ability to know that he is there. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Notice the focus on continued faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Even though things are changing, Jesus said. Even though conditions have changed, I am still right going to be right there with you, he told these men. So let's take a look at this in two ways. First of all, let's look at the crisis that they were in. Think about the setting. This was in Passion Week, but it was at the frightening close of Passion Week. Now you remember the week had begun with human hope. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem where thousands were greeting him and acclaiming him as the Messiah of Israel. There was joy in the streets and the disciples were riding high, believing that Jesus was about to take back Israel from the Roman domination and to bring a golden age to Israel and that they were going to be a part of it. Well, they were mistaken. Jesus had told them many times I'm not coming back in victory until I go in dying to the cross. He had told them many times about his cross work, but it still wasn't connecting in their minds. So they went from joy on that first day of Christ in Jerusalem in Passion Week quickly into confusion. As Jesus didn't take over the city in glory, he began to divide the city as he preached against the sin of the people and told them that they needed his saving work. He actually got into more confrontations with the religious leaders that were plotting to kill him as the disciples knew they were. And he escalated the conflict as if wishing for his death, as if wanting things to move into motion to send him to a cross. The disciples became increasingly confused and frightened. And Jesus continually predicted he would be betrayed. He would be tried. He would be tortured. He would die on a cross, but he would rise again. The dying part fixated them. The rising part seemed to escape them. So their fears began to grow. And then finally on this night, they're in the upper room. And they find out from Christ that things are going to get far worse. First of all, they experienced the betrayal of Judas earlier in the evening. And Jesus tells them that one among them would betray him. And he identifies that one by handing a morsel of bread to Judas across the table. And Judas gets up and goes to betray Christ when Christ says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And they watch all of this and it suddenly shocks them in verse 30 of chapter 13. It says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out. And I think so poignantly, the scripture says, and it was night. The sun had set under Judas's treachery and night had fallen on the disciples, not just outside, not just over the upper room, but over their very lives. Betrayal, unimaginable had happened. 
but it was going to get worse quickly. Just a moment later, Jesus tells them something else. Verse 33 of chapter 13. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The second shock, that Jesus himself was going to leave them. This one that they'd come to love over these three years. This one that they'd come to trust for every word of teaching and guidance. This one who had protected them in the Garden of Gethsemane from the soldiers that came. This one that had been their love, their wisdom, their peace, their teacher, their hope, was going to leave them? This all didn't make any sense. But Jesus repeated it. And said, I'm going somewhere where you cannot come. Of course he was. He was going to a cross to pay for their way out of death. And so Jesus makes this prediction. The trouble grows in the room. The anxiety rises in their hearts. And finally, Peter steps up and speaks about it. And as he was often wont to do in verse 36 of 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. What a beautiful word of the cross. I'm going to a cross now for you so that afterward, when I rise and your debt's been paid, you can go through death. But I must go through this myself and give my life, as was said earlier, as a ransom for sinners. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now there's more collapse. The disciples see the best among them, Peter, their amateur leader, being told that he would betray Jesus before that night was done. Shockwave after shockwave. Dark moments had settled over them. It was night in their souls. And they, like every disciple ever since, being thrust into a dark moment, all disciples in dark moments tend to panic when the outer objects of their faith are removed. And that was what was going to happen. Jesus, who had been with them every moment in power, in presence, in love, in command, and in comfort, was leaving. Now trouble rose in their heart. Anxiety suddenly overcame them. That's, that's what we see in verse 1. Their hearts were troubled. The Greek word terrazzo came from a word of reaching into a still uh, a pond of water or a, a still bucket of water, just still as glass, calm as glass, and reaching in with your arm and thrashing it all up so the water's everywhere and it's constantly stirred up. It means being stirred up by an outside force. What had happened, the force of all this change had come into their lives and what they had depended upon was taken and they were stirred up in trouble and the waves weren't settling. They were stirred up in terror. Same word was used when they saw Jesus earlier walking across the Sea of Galilee at night on the water and they supposed they'd seen a ghost. The same word, terrazzo, was used. They were in panic. They were troubled. A crisis had come upon them. And you know, crisis always troubles us. Maybe in your private life right now, something has been stirred up that was before now, something that was rock solid for you. Maybe your health has been rock solid all through the years of your life, but suddenly something has happened and a call from a doctor has come and what you depended on every day like clockwork is suddenly betraying you and you have got a troubled heart. 
Maybe your professional working situation, solid and progressing for years, has been changed by a company takeover. And you're not sure about what the future is for your family. And trouble is governing your heart at night and early in the morning. Whatever it might be. Oh, disciples in dark moments tend to panic, don't we? Well, Jesus speaks into that panic as a loving shepherd. And he speaks into their crisis with a challenge. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's a command. It's a command in which he says, stop letting, actually in the Greek, stop letting this fear dominate you. Stop letting this emotion overwhelm you. Stop letting this trouble define you. Confront it and deal with it right now. Now, how would they they be able to do that? Second phrase of the verse, believe in God, believe also in me. It's a challenge to them. He's stating here that they have always believed in God throughout their lives, a God whom they never saw. God the Father, the God of the Old Testament. They had believed in God all the way through their lives, this invisible God revealed only through the scriptures. Now they've had visible God for a period of time in the person of Jesus Christ. But he says, as you have believed in God who has been invisible, now you're going to have to believe also in me. Though I'm not with you visibly, I will continue with you invisibly. I hope you see the connection in the text. He's calling them to step up their belief in his presence. He's telling them, yes, I'm leaving you physically. I'm leaving you visibly in the next hours. But I will be with you invisibly. I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you invisibly, so keep believing in me. Now, how could Jesus continue to be with them invisibly? Well, he brings a teaching to them in this message that reveals the answer. Just a few verses down in your Bible. Look at verse 16. He tells these men, quaking in fear in the upper room, believe in God who's always been invisible. Believe that I am still with you invisibly, though I'm going to leave you in a few hours physically. How? I'm going to ask the Father, verse 16 of John 14, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I'm going to be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when I ascend into heaven, the father is going to appoint the Holy Spirit and send him to be with you and dwell within you. And you'll recognize him because he's God just like me. He said, he dwells with you now. I'm God in the person of Jesus Christ. He's God in the person of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to send someone else in my place. He's invisible, but he'll be with you just as I was. Notice a few things about this one who would be with them as close as Christ was to them physically. He says, first of all, in verse 16, he's another one just like me. The Greek word is alas. It meant another one with exactly the same person and power. Just like me. In other words, God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All one God and yet each expressed in three persons. And Jesus said, just as I've been with you in power and love and comfort and presence and guidance and protection and teaching, 
I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Father will send him. He'll be another just like me. Notice, secondly, he'll be a helper. The Greek word meant somebody who came alongside and who would not leave you. Jesus had been by their side for three years in the flesh. The Holy Spirit will be beside them and he would never leave them and he would be with them forever because at the end of verse 17, it says he would be in you. The Holy Spirit would be indwelling who they were. God would never leave them because he would be in them. This is a mighty promise. And how would he minister to them? Look at verse 17, first phrase. He is the spirit of truth. What would the Holy Spirit be sent to do? He would be sent to open truth over their lives. That's how he would comfort them and be present with them. So how could Jesus say, stop letting your hearts be troubled like this. Nothing's going to change. I'm simply going to be with you in a different way. The Holy Spirit is going to come in my place and he'll be just as present with you, though invisible, and you'll experience him by faith. You see, the Holy Spirit does that today with us. This is why it's such a precious passage. Let me give you a a minute or two of insight about what I would call biblical personality. What we're made up like spiritually. Did you know that the Bible teaches, at least in my preacher's opinion, that every human being has three dimensions? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 tells us this. Now may the God of peace himself, he writes to the believers, sanctify you, make you like Jesus completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that say about how people are put together? People have three dimensions. The body is pretty obvious. We're born into physical life. But then there's a soul. What's that? It's the uniqueness that makes you, you. It's who you are as a soul. It's the gathering of your mind and it's your emotions and your will all moving together. Your suke, the Greek word, the soul of who you are. That's given into a human body, I believe, at the moment of conception, by the way. That's why abortion is such a serious issue. A true person with a true future. The soul is joined to the body at conception, they move forward. And yet, there's another dimension called the spirit dimension. What does the Bible teach about this? We'll go back to Ephesians chapter 2. It teaches that human beings are born with dead spirits, for lack of a better phrase. Verse 1 of chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. People are born spiritually dead. That spirit dimension is dark within them. There's no life there. This is why Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, for all your religion, you're still spiritually dark inside. You must be born again. You must be born by the spirit. And Ephesians farther down in chapter two tells us that's what happens when a person comes to Christ. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. What happens when a person comes to Christ? They're born again. Spiritual life comes into that dead place that we would call the spirit of the man or the woman. And we become spiritually alive. Spiritually alive people are born again believers. Those who are not born again do not have spiritual life. 
This is why when you come to Christ, perhaps as an adult, and people see a change in you, they point it out. They say, what happened to you? It seems like you're suddenly bright with joy and happiness and peace. It seems like all of a sudden you've got this love for the Bible and it seems to dominate your life and your values are changing and the whole direction of your life and there seems to be something about you that wasn't there before. Yeah, there's someone about you that wasn't there before. The Holy Spirit who's come to dwell within you as Jesus promised and he'll never leave you and he brings light to your life and new life to that dead dimension of the spirit. I mean, when you look at a house that's been sitting on a street and it's been, nobody's lived there or stayed there for some weeks, you drive by or you walk by and you're nightly walking. Every night, it's a darkened house. Every room, dark. But suppose you walk by one night and you're standing there looking at that dark house and then all of a sudden, boom, a light in the front room comes on. What do you immediately conclude? Someone has come home. <laughs> That's what regeneration is. That's what new life in Christ is. Have you experienced that? All believers have. So Jesus said, listen, when he comes, he will come never to leave you. He will come to dwell within you. Further on in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 23, we see something interesting. He says, you are supposed to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How does that happen? Because he's the spirit of truth. Jesus said in verse 17 of John 14, he is the spirit of truth. What does the Holy Spirit do in your life? He dwells within you now to open up this truth to your new man and your new mind. And he's done it so that you can grow in Christ. You have a new dimension of reality that you live in as a believer. And Jesus was saying, listen, you no longer have to be dominated by the emotions and the perceptions just of who you are as a person in your soul alone. You now have the ability to live in truth and speak truth into your situation. This is how we live today. This is how we overcome fear today. We let the Spirit of God teach us the truth of God. And by our will, we apply the truth of God to that new man and to that new mind. And we walk after truth. We don't care what our emotions tell us. We don't give a rip what circumstances frighten us. We walk in truth. And we take authority in a sense over how we look at reality. We take authority over our minds and emotions. Now Jesus said this is the way you're going to have to live in this dark world by faith in the Holy Spirit, standing on his truth, standing in truth until you see me again. And this is life for us as believers today. Praise the Lord. Every time you open that Bible, the Holy Spirit, who's the spirit of truth, Jesus said, is there to open that truth and apply it to the new mind of the new man. And you will see it and he will speak to you and you will have truth to stand on as an act of the will by faith. And that's what we live out of. No matter what comes our way. And he'll be sufficient for it. That's how we live in a broken, darkening world. But then Jesus said, that's how you have to live in this dark world until you see me again, and you will. Let's go on further. He shifts from that battle point in verse 1 to a future hope, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. Part of my going is not just to a cross, it's through a resurrection back into heaven to prepare a place for you to live with me forever. Of course I have to go. And Jesus said, it is to your benefit that I go. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He was saying, listen, for a while, you're going to have to live by faith through the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to live by faith, which is virtual reality. (laughs) It's seeing just enough of what God has said to hold on by faith. But when you get to heaven, Jesus said, I'm coming back and I'm taking you to ultimate reality. I will come back for you. This is only for a time. Now he does two things. He redirects them to the true place of security and that's heaven. Notice he doesn't expand into a seminar in verse 1 about how to stand on truth and how to believe. He says you're just going to have to learn to do it by faith. But it won't be forever. The true place of security is coming. Heaven and I'm coming back to bring you there. That's the true place of security. Then he reassures them that everything he told them about heaven is absolutely trustworthy. Everything he ever said about heaven is true. Now, how do you go to be with Jesus? How do you get to the Father's house? The Bible says there's two ways. One is through the experience of physical death. It's just a moment. It's just a step. And suddenly you'll be with the Lord. Didn't Paul say, absent from the body, present with the Lord? Now that's how you step into the Father's house. Many of our beloveds have. We may do that. But there's also a moment coming in prophetic time that I think Jesus is referring to here. I think in verses 2 to 4, he's talking about the future rapture of the church. He's talking about a moment in the future as he brings time to a close where the Bible says that at a time we don't know, he's going to come invisibly in the clouds and he's going to take every believer who's alive on earth at that time and take us immediately to be with him in a moment called the rapture where we get our resurrection bodies without going through death. Yes, there's going to be some believers in the history of the world who don't have to taste physical death to go to the Father's house. Now the Bible says that could happen at any moment and I'm, I'm hoping that this message doesn't end. I'm hoping that the next paragraph, we're preaching it in heaven. It could happen. It will happen. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm coming back for you. And I'm coming back because I've prepared a place for you. Now let's look at this. The imagery he used here is very intentional, of course. And I think he used imagery from something that they really understood from their own experience in Jewish culture. He talks about going to prepare a place for them. And coming back. That would be very familiar to them. Let me read you the words of one commentator I looked at this week. He says, Our spiritual journey into heaven finds a clear illustration, and it found it that night, in the Jewish custom of engagement during our Lord's time on earth between a bride and a groom. When his disciples heard him tell them not to let their hearts be troubled because he would soon go away to prepare a place for them to live together, that he would come back and take them where they would be together forever, they would have understood his words against the backdrop of that custom of how a Jewish young man and a Jewish young woman were engaged. I remind you that the Bible says that you and I today are part of the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5, and that Jesus is our bridegroom. Listen to this. He goes on, when a first century Jewish man fell in love with a woman, he would travel from his father's home, his father's house to hers to seal the engagement. 
The engagement was a permanent commitment. It wasn't temporary to see if maybe you should be married. It was as good as a marriage commitment in their society. It represented a legal contract. And that engagement couldn't start until the groom had paid a special price for the bride. My Bible tells me that I, as a believer, as a member of the bride of Christ, I have been bought with a price. And I'm no longer my own. I'm committed to my bridegroom. Oh, the imagery must have been stirring their hearts that night. So the groom would leave his father's house. He would come to where his bride was. He would pray a a precious price for her. And that price set that woman apart exclusively for him. Now they were immediately from that moment regarded as husband and wife. Irrevocably bound to symbolize their covenant. Each in that moment would drink from a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction had been pronounced. I remind you that in the upper room that night, Jesus took a cup of wine with his disciples. And after he finished it, he said, I will not drink of this cup of wine again until I am with you with my father. It's also interesting that the bride and groom would drink that cup of wine at the moment of their engagement and then the groom would leave and go back to his father's house and they would not share a cup of wine together again until they were together and fully married and their marriage was consummated at the father's house. So so to symbolize that covenant, the cup was taken. Following that moment, the groom would return to his father's house for a period of 12 months. For that entire time, he remained separate from his bride. She would not see him again until it was time to consummate their union. Jesus said, I go away to my father's house. Now, while she waited, the bride knew what her groom was, uh, what her job was during his absence. She had to prepare herself for his coming and for the rest of her life with him. Everything in her life revolved around that. The Bible says that that's what we're to do. We're to present ourselves spotless when we see him. Now, while she waited, she knew what her groom was doing. He was spending the year adding an apartment to his father's house. In Jewish culture, in that time, you didn't, as a young married couple, go out and put a down payment on a house of your own or find an apartment of your own. No, the groom would go back to his father's house where he had grown up, where he had lived, and he would build a new add-on apartment, a dwelling place, onto the father's house. And that's where the the bride and the groom would start their life together and would live together. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, it must have been ringing in their hearts. So she knew that that's what he was doing. Now, when the engagement year ended at an exact day, this commentator says, and an exact hour that the bride did not know. Remember, Jesus said, I occupy till I come. You do not know the time or the hour when I may return. The groom would gather his wedding party at the father's house and in a torch-lit procession they would travel to where his bride was living, she not knowing it was happening. And the groom's arrival would be preceded by a shout from one of his friends. I hear my Bible saying that at the moment of the rapture there will be the shout of the archangel and the trump of God. Why? Because the bridegroom will be coming at long last for his precious bride. Oh, my goodness. What a beautiful image. At that moment, she had made herself ready. She was always ready, waiting for that unknown hour. She had no greater dream than his coming and was confident that he would arrive to take her to be with him in the home he had prepared. 
And with her attendants, she would travel to that home, the father's house. And when they walked into the father's house, they would walk into a party just starting to happen. The Bible calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Would I have not committed myself to you as the one I'm going to buy with a price tomorrow? Oh, and I'll rise and I'll go and you won't see me visibly again. For quite some time, the Holy Spirit will be your invisible comforter and guide. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again in rapture or in death and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You'll see me, guys, again. You'll see me visibly and physically in glorious resurrection body that I have. Oh, the beauty of it all. Everything he said was true. And I believe today that if a believer slips away in death, they'll have the experience just like Stephen did. Somebody was telling me this the other day when Stephen was being stoned for his faith. He looked up and he saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus actually is, according to Hebrews, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God to show that his sacrifice was complete and he didn't need to do anything else why is he standing when Stephen's about to die and enter heaven? He's standing to welcome him. He's standing to welcome one of his beloved for whom he paid the price. I believe at the moment of death for every believer, Jesus stands to welcome us home. And he says, welcome to the Father's house. I told you I'd come for you. Beloved, if he's good enough for that great promise, he's good enough to keep us through everything until we get there. Well, one more thing came up in the conversation. And this is, he taught them finally that we and they and we need to grow in the, in the ability to know that he's enough as we labor and wait. Two things. He reveals what we think we need. Thomas steps up. And Thomas is every, every man because Thomas wanted to know the details. We have an addiction to controlling everything about God and everything about what he promises. We need to know just a little bit more, just a little bit how or a little bit when. And Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, we, we, we don't know where you're going. They were still unclear on the whole dimension of heaven. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, we want to know the details. How God's going to take care of all this. We're addicted to details. I find people asking me these, these days, Pastor, how bad do you think things could get? Or how quickly could things get to a point where we're going through something we've never gone through before? I can't answer that. That's for God to know. We're not supposed to worry about that. We're supposed to walk with him. How's God going to take care of us if something... This happens or that happens. We're all addicted like Thomas was. That's what we think we need, but he shows us what he knows we need. You see, we don't need to know everything about how he's going to walk us through this age. We don't know everything about, need to know everything about the future. We don't need to know everything about the way. Listen, we just need to know the way maker. Never forget it. Jesus didn't give him any details. He just said, I am the way. In a beautiful passage, not only about salvation, but about getting to heaven. 
He says, I'll get you there. Don't you worry about the where and the when and the how. I'm the way to heaven because that's where the Father is. My cross is that pathway. My resurrection is the guarantee. I'm the truth about getting to heaven. Everything I've told you and that you'll learn from the Holy Spirit is the only truth that can be counted upon for eternity. And I'm the life. Only spiritually alive people can enter into a living place called heaven. And so he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to birth that life within you. And that life will allow you to step into heaven almost seamlessly. (laughs) In a wonderful way. Old Bible commentator of the distant past centuries ago said it this way. Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. And without the life, there's no living. (laughs) That's why Jesus is everything about heaven. But if you know him, you're going. And if you've got his truth, you're knowing. And if you possess the life of the spirit, you're living. And that's the story of comfort he gave. So... Are you troubled about these darkening days? I can understand. I share it too. But we don't have to be, Jesus said. We don't have to be dominated by it. Because he is still with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Truth can break upon our our new minds and we can stand in truth no matter what we face or even what we feel. And it will only be for a while. Because he is coming back. Because he bought us for a price. He's making a place for us in his father's house. And he promised to take us to be with him forever. Luther really was right. This really was the most comforting sermon Jesus ever preached. I've lived in its comfort for decades. That's where he wants us to live. May it deeply comfort your heart this morning.